Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Christian Cameron, historical novelist and sometimes self-described experimental archaeologist. He's the author most recently of Sword of Justice and the forthcoming New Achilles, which promises to be the first of a series of novels set in Hellenistic Greece, focusing on the general Philippoimen. Is that right? Is that, is that, is yep. that right? The last, or even Philippimen. Philippimen, the last of the Greeks. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us on Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I'm you, very sorry about the email error. You have written a lot. Uh, how many series have you written? Let's not just talk about individual books, but let's just talk about how many series have you written? I, I think I'm on five. One, two, three, four, maybe six. Yeah. Something yeah. like 26 books, 25 books, something like that. Uh, actually, I'm writing my 40th book. You're right. Oh, okay. I, my apologies. That's all right. Uh, it's almost an order of magnitude. Uh, not really, but there. Um, so before you've had a, um, I'd say that uh, it's almost like talking to, there's a, there's a certain generation of authors um, that you and I probably both grew up r reading where they would have their biography on the back and they're always, always very Hemingway inspired. And it would say that they had been, you know, rodeo riders and lumberjacks and all the rest of that stuff. I used to love those. Yeah, yeah. me too. Those are like, okay, this is the book I'm buying. Um, you actually kind of remind me of that. Uh, you've had a very, a very varied background. Um, so let's talk about that. I'm, I'm particularly curious about, you know, you, and just about all of it comes into your books in one way or the other, it seems to me. So if you could talk about uh, how did you get to be a professional writer? Uh, two things that I'd say right off the bat. One is my dad was a professional writer. Yeah. Still is. Um, and uh, it really does greatly ease your function as a professional writer to have one in your life. doesn't have to be your dad or your mom. But as I joke to young people who want to be writers, just knowing that this can actually be done as a full-time job and having somebody where you go like, well, she does it, he does it, super useful. Uh, also, my dad taught me a ton about writing. But the other is the high school I went to. And I, I always make this sort of uh, advertisement. I went to Jesuit high school and they believed above all things in writing. And by the time I graduated, I could write a five-page essay in an hour. That was one of the goals of our sort of English program. And That was, uh, that was actually a stated goal? A stated goal. Five-page essay in an hour. And, you know, uh, just between us uh, and anyone else listening to your podcast, if especially anyone out there who's a, an undergraduate in university, if you can write a five-page essay on any subject in the world in one hour with another hour's research, you will get good grades in virtually any program you enter. It's... Uh... It's a fantastic skill and craft. Yeah. And what I love about that is it so demystifies um, everything about writing. You know, if I had 10 bucks for every student who ever said to me, well, I need to feel inspired, you know, and, and that's like the worst thing for writing. I mean, it sabotaged me as a graduate student until yep. I finally realized that we're not looking for winds of inspiration. We're not clipper ships. We're tramp steamers. Yeah. You know, we do 10 knots 
We do it 10 knots. It ain't pretty. We do it over and over and over again. And sometimes we do six knots and leave a lot of smoke. Yeah, but, but we still make the mileage or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Over, over time. So uh, then um, when I was in the military, you know, again, if you read my dust jacket, it sounds all dashing and romantic. <laughs> uh, but a huge part of the kind of intel officer I was is writing. And uh, when I was an analyst for NCIS, I used to have to generate basically a newspaper that was written by, uh, read by decision makers. And just think of it as a newspaper. It's easiest to think of that way on all the terrorism acts in the world. And I was a reporter with 30 other reporters, and we had to produce every day a certain number of words. And that was super good for focusing. Um, and even when I was doing more daring do, uh, you never get to see James Bond write his contact reports, but you got to write contact reports. Mm -hmm. And they're 60, 80 pages, to, you know, describing every element of everything you did. Uh, basically, I think I've spent my whole life practicing to be a writer. So you were in the Navy after you, you've said somewhere after the longest undergraduate, um, you know. Yeah. Seven, seven years. That's seven not years true, by the way. That's not the longest. I'm sure that there's plenty of people who beat that. Um so you joined the Navy. Why? Because your dad had been in the Navy, or what was the what was the reason for that? Uh, I I blame C.S. Forrester. Okay, yeah. I I I always wanted to be in the Navy. Uh, yeah, my dad was in the Navy, and that didn't hurt. Mm -hmm. But uh, I definitely had an idea of what I was going to do in the Navy, and it had nothing to do with what I ended up doing. But that's fine. But you uh, flew around probably in the back of a S three Viking, vomiting a lot or something like that. Uh, a lot of that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had a great time, uh, mm -hmm. to be honest. I, I know that's not really a popular thing to say about military service, but I really enjoyed my military service. I learned a lot. I became a much less arrogant college boy. Uh, and um, and I did get to do some of the stuff I wanted to do. You know, I never got to command a ship, but I got to command anti-submarine warfare operations, and I got to sort of run tactical problems and stuff, and I learned a lot from that. And I also learned that most senior military officers are actually really smart, which is not how they're always portrayed, either in fantasy or uh, or historical fiction. But um, uh, I, it was interesting learning the systems and processes because mm -hmm. uh, it helped me really understand history. And uh, listen, when I was graduating from university, one of my favorite professors, a guy named Perez Zagarin, whose books are still widely read today, mm -hmm. um, uh, who had led a bit of a life of daring do of his own, said to me, he said, I know that you have the option to go to graduate school, but I'm going to recommend that you stay outside the ivory tower and make a little history before you write about it. Um, and I have to say that the first Gulf War and getting, amongst other things, to listen to the president of the United States argue with advisors uh, firsthand on our clandestine radio while we all sat in the combat information center waiting for a decision on certain things was the most informative thing that ever happened to me for my writing, listening to how critical decisions are made. And then the frustration when you're out on a strike or something of sitting in the cockpit, listening to the decision makers change their minds or change the program. And you go, oh, this is how history happens. Mm, this a, is how it all works. That's a very, you had a highly unusual perspective then it, when you were in the CIC listening to the president arguing with his advisors. I think it's George McDonald Fraser in his brilliant memoir, Quartered Safe Out Here, 
suggest fabulous that, book. Yeah, it's yeah. fabulous. Suggest that every official history should be accompanied by a memoir of a private soldier who was actually involved in the action, and then he contrasts um, the history of his unit and of I guess the for, history of the Fourteenth Army uh, in some maneuver with what actually people in his squad thought was going on at the time. It's a hilarious contrast, but you had something that very few people technologically have been able to have that a window into what was going on at the very top of the decision-making apparatus while being all the way at the very edge of what was about to carry out the strike. Yeah, I, I couldn't have bought myself a better education on how it all really works. Yeah, um, it was it was super interesting. And I, you know, anyway, I won't bore you with it, but I saw a lot of stuff in my military career that uh, was super informative for writing. I saw senior officers get fired. I saw people with amazing delusions of grandeur fail. And I, I learned what to me is the profound lesson that underlies all the William Gold books and really all my books, which mm -hmm. is that actually in the end, good guys generally win. And I don't necessarily just mean morally good guys, but people who can form a team based on trust can get with their comrades, not stab them in the back and perform the plan of the day as it was made that morning will generally defeat any number of selfish assholes. <laughs> it's a very, it's, it's a little long for a bumper sticker, but it's, it's a great, <laughs> uh, it's a great takeaway, which that was, which that was our ending. Um, we'll have to make it at the ending. The, uh, how did you get involved into experimental archaeology, which for other people might be called historical reenacting? How, how did that come about? So when I was uh, 13 years old, the American Bicentennial started. Mm. Uh, probably almost nobody listening is old enough to remember the Bicentennial, but it was this fabulous thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I lived in Rockport, Massachusetts at the time, which was close enough to the original seat of the conflict in Lexington and Concord that my dad said, you know, we should drive down and take part. And for very curious reasons that I won't go into, my Boy Scout troop decided to convert themselves into Minutemen. And we were sad and terrible, uh, but we did participate, sort of. And uh, and I'm 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 going to say what I learned in one reenactment was that uh, reenacting had everything that Boy Scouts didn't: guns and girls. So um, I'm that, surprised that, about the second, but go on. Re really, really blunt. No, there were tons of young women, and you know there there sort of always have been. You know, women are an actual part of history. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't actually mean to direct that at you. But uh, yeah, I I just preferred reenacting. The camping challenges were, were more interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad is a fanatic wilderness camper, and I grew up camping. And I'll, I'll be honest, and I mean no offense to Boy Scouts, but Boy Scouts was a huge disappointment to me because I kept waiting for us to do something as interesting as just going camping with my dad. Yeah, uh, And reenacting offered all that. And early on in reenacting, my dad said a really interesting thing. He said... Uh, you know, mostly you guys are just reenacting my youth. You're learning how to make a fire and you're learning how to shoot a gun. And that was kind of true for a while. And then as the bicentennial itself died away, mm -hmm. we had to have a sort of new raison d'etre than just dressing up in costumes and pretending. And that combined with some changes in what I'll call museum science, mm -hmm. sort of the study of material culture led a lot of people to get really interested in how exactly things worked. Not costume, but clothing. How, how a coat was really made. Not just looking like that coat, but really that coat. How did they start a fire? How did they cut wood? They didn't have chainsaws. How did they build a fort? 
without any modern equipment. How long does it actually take to dig a trench? And what's funny is, I'm going back to my dad's comment about camping in the 1940s, uh, I think the generation before ours actually already knew a lot of these answers. I think that anybody who'd been in World War II, you know, World War II was the largest war ever fought by human beings with horses. Mm -hmm. Like horse-drawn transport was still the backbone of the German army at the beginning of World War II. And so a lot of the questions we had about what it was like to live back then, our back then being the 18th century, would have been much more familiar to my grandfather. Mm -hmm. They, I'm not sure he'd have felt he needed to reenact the past right. to understand how a bunch of systems, let's just call them systems, worked. Like what it was like to do laundry for a thousand men with no modern equipment. Mm -hmm. Something I can now tell you a lot about. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's. I'm I'm curious to hear some of these these things because I I suspect I mean I'm probably guilty of this too that we think of uh, reenactors as guys who show up, fire off a few muskets, and go back to the LL Bean tent on the other side of the car park. Um, but you and sure those those are absolutely reenactors, and I'm I'm uh, surprisingly unjudgy. Yeah, I I completely recognize that I am on a continuum with a person in a cat suit going to a LARP with a rubber sword. Okay. I'm not offended by that comparison. We are on a continuum. But uh, <laughs> but uh, so you've, you've washed laundry with a thousand. I mean, that's, that's an interesting. Once you've done that, you know something about the past. Um, if you read Washington's letters um, and general orders, half of them have to be devoted towards hygiene while washing. Hey. Um, and they, and there's a there's a very good reason for that because they still are uh, probably a lot of time has been spent in the military thinking about how to wash without killing everyone with dysentery. Yeah, um, dirty soldiers died in the 18th century, and while uh, pop history likes to tell us how primitive and stupid people were in the past, uh, sure they didn't have germ theory particularly, but they were right on top of what killed their soldiers. Um, if you read Raimondo Montecuccioli. Uh, Montecuccioli is already richly aware of a lot of what medically is dangerous for soldiers. And when does he write? Uh, 1660, I want to say. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I only mention this to say, so part of our reenactment was um, my wife and 50 other women who were as interested in reenacting as we were, and we wanted them to have a role. And after a while, they developed an impression as laundresses. And one of the most rewarding events we ever did, we went to and all we did was do a field laundry. So we never picked up our guns because uh, there would have been soldiers assigned to the laundry. And in the British Army of the 18th century, every mess, every group of 10 men had one or two women assigned to it. They were regimental women. They were on the rolls. They were as much in the army as the men were. Mm -hmm. And they were mostly there to do laundry. Uh, they were absolutely not prostitutes because the army had ways of taking care of that. Um, and they were usually married, in fact, to senior enlisted. It was like a Benny. If you get your wife into the army, you're pulling down twice as much pay and food. Um, so anyway, uh, we decided to do a regimental laundry. And it, I think it is still virtually unforgettable in, in Revolutionary War reenactment circles because 30 men and 30 women putting on a regimental laundry and just washing everyone's clothes, anyone who came up to us. And a bunch of the girls were sitting in the grass laundry marking. That is... With, uh, putting embroidered initials on things because all the white linen shirts are virtually identical. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then we dried it all and 
people basically went, oh, that's what a military camp would look like. Yeah. Mostly it would look like laundry. Laundry and, <laughs> laundry and garbage. Yeah. One, of the other, one of the other demos we did that was uh, truly distasteful was uh, all weekend at Fort Ticonderoga once, everything we ate, all the garbage, we just dumped in our company street. Uh, and we only could eat authentic things, right? Mm -hmm. Because we wanted the garbage to look right and smell right. But one of the most frequently issued daybook orders in the Seven Years' War to American troops was once again the 29th time forbidding them to dump the garbage from their meals in the streets. So you know they did that. And you know they also pissed on those piles. Yeah. And then that gives you an idea of why the disease rate amongst American provincials may have been so very high. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, once you have done this, even for one weekend with incredibly clean modern people kind of hesitantly throwing their watermelon rind in the street in front of their tent, your idea of what a military camp was like is transformed forever. Yeah. You will never get it back. It's not neat and clean, and it's not an LLB tent. It's really bad. <laughs> Discipline is required. Yes. Um, and you've done, you, you, you would, uh, one of your groups, you would do these treks through the Adirondacks, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to one this weekend. Really? And so what will your, how do you equip yourself for that? Yeah, uh, so welcome to the world of compromise. And it's We're, also, uh, by the way, it, it's what it is. We're recording this on January fifteenth. It just occurred to me you're in Toronto, so you're going to the Adirondacks on a January snowy January day. I take it it's been snowing up there. Yeah, if you look at the weather forecast, we're supposed to get twenty to twenty-five inches of snow this weekend. Well, enjoy that. I mean, how do you? Yeah. How do you uh, so we're going. We're going in medieval kit, uh, yeah. and. Um, it will be difficult, and we will be wearing snowshoes that would be authentic in 1400 only if you were an Algonquin. Uh -huh. uh, uh, but, you know, the First Nations had the Middle Ages, too. They just didn't have the church or horse or chivalry or armor. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were definitely there in 1400. Uh, no, we're, uh, we're going to use snowshoes because 20 inches of snow is more than... I know the authentic thing to do would be to wear patents and crunch through the snow with every step. But, you know... Uh, this is a clear example of the superiority of First Nations technology, yeah. and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna indulge that. Here's a question: Would Norwegian knights, would Vikings have used skis by that time? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I have medieval skis, and so does another guy in my group. Um, yeah, uh, skis. Sometimes just one ski mm -hmm. with a patten or a wooden sort of grabber on the other foot. The ski would literally have a skin on it. I'm sure you've heard of skins. Yeah. Skis, but I didn't it would know literally that was literal. under your foot, uh, under your foot, it would have a piece of beaver or moose hide or something. So it slides in one direction and grabs in the other. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they really do work. But I'll tell you from experimentation, they really work best when everybody has them. And two of us having skis while nine other people don't is a recipe for a lot of bad feeling. So <laughs> I will be leaving my skis home. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the the. Uh, 14th century Norwegians could hunt elk on skis. Um, uh, yeah, totally. Also a little terrain dependent, though. This is mm -hmm. the problem of reenacting Europe in, in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a lot of long, flat lakes in the Adirondacks to just sort of skim across while looking cool. <laughs> so you've done this experimental archaeology for all, all, then a long time, since 1776. Um, you've also been doing martial arts, both... Um, modern quote unquote and now there's this this thing which I wasn't aware of till recently of historical European martial arts could you and then th this really comes into all of your all of your books are based essentially in military context so 
a lot, you need to know something about swordplay uh, more than just the idea that people have that it's a bunch of, you know, uh, basically guys in trash cans beating each other with clubs. Yeah. So, first of all, a little proviso. Uh, sure. To just, just today, I wrote Philip Eman saying to someone that uh, he'd rather have a thousand trained horsemen with no idea how to use a weapon than a thousand Spartan Pancratianists with no idea how to ride a horse. And um, martial arts are all very well, but war is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And it's really better to know the drill and know how to maneuver than to know how to use a sword, curiously. Um, because the Romans proved that, that, I think. Th things that people often forget in war is that there's mass psychology and uh, morale, food. Mm -hmm. um, so the moment at which you get to actually use your super fast martial arts skill, uh, it may save your life or it may end somebody else's. But I would say those moments were probably incredibly rare. So uh, that all that said, uh, I mostly like martial arts for me. I mean, they inform yeah. my books, but I've always really enjoyed them. Uh, so I've done Aikido, uh, mm -hmm. which I started way back when I was at Naval Criminal Investigative Service. Uh, very, very interesting kind of beautiful martial art. Mm -hmm. And um, then for the last 12 years, uh, Armit Zare, which is a Italian historical martial art. Um, I'm super careful of the term HEMA, historical European martial arts. So I'm just going to say on one level, I really dislike the European in there, like mm -hmm. Europeans are special. No, I think it's. I just, guess I think it's when you know when you, in the seventies. I mean, when people talked about martial arts, they had to be Japanese or then Chinese, um, right? Through Bruce Lee right. and ninja films. Um, so it was uh, in, in many ways. It's quite a shock to discover that you know Europeans also had martial arts. Yeah, and martial arts that so greatly re resemble, for instance, jujitsu, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that. That you, the human body, it only works in so many ways, uh, biomechanically. And biomechanics is probably the biggest thing that's hit martial arts since, um, I don't know, since judo came to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, biomechanics allows us to look at a Renaissance picture and say, oh, he has to be doing that because the body only works this way. And that's super important. And probably before 1950, it would have been really hard to decipher a lot of the German and Italian texts. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the really interesting thing, uh, and there's a really good book called Old School. Um, I could whip it off my shelf if you uh, want to look at it, about the origins of Eastern martial arts and how they developed. Uh, but, you know, most of the martial arts we see here, most of the so-called Eastern martial arts, are uh, really only date from the 1920s and 30s. They aren't ancient, and they have very little to do with the way samurai fought mm -hmm. or... Uh, Chinese monks fought. And when you look at 16th century Japanese or Chinese texts, then you really see martial arts that are amazingly like the Italian or German. Hmm. Um, and then when you discover that by the middle of the 16th century, which would seem to most people to be a really long time ago, Chinese, Japanese, and Portuguese pirates were all hanging out together on Formosa. <laughs> So let's, um, your most recent cycle of novels is uh, set around a character named Sir William Gold. Um, could you just give a brief sort of description of the novels, the period in which they're set and what they're about? Sure. Uh, they're set in uh, late 14th century England, France, and Italy. 
uh, period commonly known as the Hundred Years' War, although uh, as an aside, I'll just mention that the ongoing eventual war between Venice and Genoa, uh, Venice and Genoa both had larger GDPs than England and France, to the best of my knowledge, and we tend to be very Anglo-centric about that part of the Hundred Years' War. But uh, Italy was huge. Italy had all the money. And uh, so that's part of it. A, a pivotal individual historically was uh, John Hawkwood, a so-called condottier. Uh, and you're going to ask me what a condottier is, and I'm going to say uh, uh, technically just a person with a contract. A condotta is a contract. But uh, in the early 14th century, before the time that the English came to Italy to fight, uh, there were already groups of men who would form companies, Compagnie de, de Aventura, companies of adventure, and they would fight for you as a, as a group under contract. And from that, we get the so-called condottier system, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say John Hawkwood exemplified. Mm -hmm. And uh, I chose to place my novels in this world to me because it's so pivotal to the modern age. Uh, so much of our Western culture evolves out of the Middle Ages. Uh, I had a professor in university who said, and I agree, that next to the Bible, um, chivalry was the next most important ethical concept to be dropped on Western civilization. And I can say as a military veteran that parts of the ethic of chivalry are still with us, whether we like it or not, whether we think that's a good idea or not. Ideas of vindication of honor by means of violence are still very strongly part of our society. Anyway, that's a drift. Yeah, no, uh, I want to get back Gold, to that, but, uh, but yeah, go on. William Gold, uh, semi-historical character. Uh, there really was a William Gold, and as often as I can, I make his life line up with my novels. But I've also created a lot of William Gold. So let me shock you and say, to the best of my knowledge, the real William Gold was not a volunteer in the Knights of St. John. Mm -hmm. uh, that I made up out of whole cloth, mostly because I'm fanatically and scholarly interested in the Knights of St. John in the 14th century. And I sort of wanted to work that in. Uh, but also, I wanted to show how thin the line between a routier, a sort of thug, a mm -hmm. thug knight, and uh, a truly chivalrous knight, that what a knife edge it was between being the one and the other, and how one person could really be both of those things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that the the good history being written by people like Bill Cafaro uh, and Ken Fowler will bear me out that sometimes the thugs are also the great knights. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I wanted to capture all that in one person. And I also wanted to talk about religion, which I know is odd. I know that most of my contemporary historical fiction writers avoid religion. But look, I'm a pretty serious medievalist, and you can't have the Middle Ages without religion. Well, you certainly can. And that gets, I, I might as well say, um, get to that now. Um, one of the problems I always have with historical novels is that the people are 20th, 21st century people, but they're just in some fancy dress. Uh, but they have all the same attitudes. Uh, they have all the same uh, mores uh, as we do. And therefore, they're very intelligible to us. In fact, they're too intelligible. And somehow, uh, you managed to write about 14th century people who are not us. Uh, and But this is always the, the problem, isn't it? If they were perfectly 14th century, then we might not be able to read the book. Um, yeah. Chaucer is very hard for us to read. Beowulf is very hard for us to read. Um, it would be, do, does a historical novel have to be Chaucer? Um, not necessarily in the use of the Middle English, but just in the everything. Um, but somehow you have to split the difference. 
Well, you do. Uh, it's my job. And yeah. by the way, this is an excellent question and a question that I have waited my whole life to answer. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like to me, this is the very hardest thing. Yeah, so it is. It, it's, it's actually not that hard to work out historical plots. No. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But historical character and bringing them to life is super hard because they aren't us, but they are us. Like, uh, there is a really great anthropologist named Colin Renfrew who has written a lot of stuff I really enjoyed reading, but who basically says, like, the thing to remember about the human condition is that we aren't on top of 6,000 years of history. We're also on top of 100,000 years of prehistory that we can't even look back on. You know, we're created by all this stuff and we change. So, yeah, we change. And William, my William Gold is probably far too modern. But through research and, you know, you, I think you and I could agree that research is super important. You can get into the intellectual history of a period. You just named Geoffrey Chaucer. Okay, if you read Chaucer, if you read Boccaccio, you're actually in the 14th century for a minute. Mm-hmm. And you can read through that a whole lot of attitudes about sexuality and about religion. And you can say, ah, that's what most people thought. That's at least what Boccaccio thought. That's what Dante thought. And you can sort of form a gestalt, if you'll pardon my use of the term, of what, uh, what was an acceptable view of a chivalric professional in the 14th century. And then I try and reflect that. So, mm-hmm. for instance, because I am as good a feminist as I can manage to be, I really don't want to write endlessly about the mistreatment of women by men, which is definitely a thing in the Middle Ages. But I try and use William Gold's chivalrous impulses and sometimes lecherous impulses to make him friendly to women instead of making him a fake modern feminist, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, that's right. That's exactly, I, I know exactly what you, I mean, having read the novels, I see how you've done that. And that seems to me to be one of the only ways of splitting that difference. Yeah. And so when I, when I write about slavery um, in both ancient Greek novels and in Washington and Caesar, which you were kind enough to say you'd read, uh, it is very tempting because like many scholars, I think that the abolition of slavery is one of humankind's greatest achievements. It's very tempting to make every character I write anti-slavery. But hey, that's not how it was. So I'm happy to say that Philip Heman, who I'm writing right now, appears to have been anti-slavery, and that made him a radical in his time, and that's interesting. But, uh, you know, Aramnestos of Plataea thinks it's great. Own slaves, treat them decently, free a couple a year, and the rest will work harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, I'm not and, saying and, that's Christian Cameron's attitude, but I think that's a good Greek farmer attitude. Yeah, and it's a good Greek farmer. And that's also from someone who's been a slave uh, and, yes. and can be, uh, and this is a, a character of a previous series of yours, who is personally offended at having been made a slave at those who made him a slave, but is not necessarily, does not translate that into a, a love for other slaves, which I think is, must be, seems to me, must be historically spot on. Uh, there were people who found, anyway, who found all that very difficult reading, because I guess he should have been more anti-slavery. Uh, that's fine. Uh, again, uh, it is a very fine line. Mm-hmm. You can very easily, very easily make any character fall off that cliff and just sound like a modern person. And then, you know, uh, we started this on religion, and I'm just going to say, uh, while I know that far more famous historical novelists than I write most of their characters to be agnostic or deeply irreligious. 
I just don't see that in the Middle Ages. I what I see is people for whom uh, the Christian, Judaic, or Islamic religion was every bit as omnipresent as the First Nations guys I grew up with, who would toss tobacco over their shoulders every time they passed a graveyard. Automatically, they mm -hmm. wouldn't talk to you about what they believed. They just tossed the tobacco. They'd yeah. break up a cigarette out of a pack of cigarettes, and that sort of automatic piety, and I'm using piety in the Latin Roman mm -hmm. sense, is something that transcends mere belief. It's cultural. It's automatic. And mm -hmm. I, I wanted to convey that both about Greek gods and Greek novels and, and, and about Christianity or Judaism or Islam in the William Gold books. Yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't seem to me that when the historical novels do that, when they turn someone to agnostic or an atheist in a milieu in which that would be I think you said written somewhere. And this is kind of, even atheists in, th in the 14th century go to church, um, yep. and they and they you know the figuratively they have a certain pietas. They they are you know figuratively speaking breaking the cigarette open and tossing the tobacco over their shoulder. I like that. Um, they're doing that even though they might not believe whatever that means in that context. They might not be orthodox, but they they have an orthopraxy. Um, so you know invariably, um, it doesn't seem to me that uh, when you avoid that, it's not a very writerly thing to do. Um, the, the hard challenge for a writer is to actually take that challenge. The, the hard thing to do for writers, take that challenge on and write someone who is like that. It seems to me. Well, it's, it's very kind of you to say, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think some people, some of whom are writers, mistake rampant anti-clericism for agnosticism or atheism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that understanding that the 14th century was a time when almost everybody had had it up to here with elements of the Roman Catholic Church doesn't take with it any actual change in their basic beliefs, mm -hmm. or at least that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we were talking earlier about plot. Um, how do you, I mean, you're dealing with certain facts uh, uh, that, uh, say, a, a fantasy novelist doesn't have to deal with, uh, that um, John Hawkwood attacked Florence in such and such a week of such and such a year, uh, that the crusade against Alexandria happened at such and such a time. How do you weave in a plot around all these other things? Does it make it easier or harder? Yes, easier <laughs> and harder. So uh, I, I, I like to think of actual history as the trellis mm -hmm. behind the the rather organic growth of the plot. So pretty early on, William Gold, I'm just going to stick to William Gold. From the very beginning, I pretty literally made a timeline. Actually, it was a set of timelines because I had some, some Islamic history and some Italian history and some English history. And I plotted it on timelines because I like timelines because I'm super chronological, possibly because I'm old. So do you have it on the board like behind you right now? That Do you have like a, an entire William Gold timeline, which would completely give everything away? Um, no, uh, this is what I have on on my wall above me. That, okay, that, that would be Venice. Yeah, that's Venice. That's, it's uh, 1501. Yeah. Don't, I don't know if that came across. No, it does. Uh, uh, but... Uh, I have it. It's just online because I can do all this digitally now. Sure, sure. Um, and and so what I'm going to say I do is I build the trellis first. Mm -hmm. Bang, bang, bang. Uh, so I sort of get my historical events in a row and I say, oh, <clears throat> so first of all, red dots, William Gold was actually there. Mm -hmm. So I know the day he was actually knighted. That actually seems to have happened. So there it is. 
you know, bang, uh, that, that should happen. That, that should definitely be in this book. Or I guess I could go back a step further and say the moment at which I choose that William Gold will be the character. Mm -hmm. That's a choice. And I can remember the day I made that choice because I originally thought John Hawkwood was going to be the character. Mm -hmm. And then I decided he really wasn't a very likable fellow. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, and then I go through and red dot the things I can't avoid. These are events that really happened in William Gold's life. And I try not to play with history. Mm -hmm. I don't all of a sudden decide that George Washington wasn't a slave owner. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm going to, I'm going to go with this. And then I'm going to literally pick and choose which events I want to cover. The Siege of Alexandria. I could have skipped that, right? For example, William Gold could have gone uh, to Spain with the Black Prince, to the campaign of Niara, mm -hmm. right? And it would have been just as interesting, especially since very new research suggests that maybe Geoffrey Chaucer did go to the, to the campaign of Niara. Mm -hmm. So that would have been an interesting book. And I thought about it and I decided to leave it behind. If anybody ever pays me to write it, I am thinking of writing a side novel about Geoffrey Chaucer at Niera. But, um, anyway, totally, totally different subject. So I've got my, I've got my trellis. And now as I start to grow the plot, the first thing I do is just decide sort of, this is the main branch of the rose bush, if you like, or of the grapevine, decide where we're actually going. We're going to the siege of Alexandria. Okay, there it is. And then very early on, I decided we were going to be at the Milanese wedding of Prince Lionel because, like, everyone was there. Chaucer was there. Boccaccio was there. Uh, I thought it would be a good place to have. Okay. Go on. Go on. Um, to have William Gold. So you get what I'm saying. So, so now I know where the plot has to go. And then uh, I do a ton of research. I don't even want to tell you how much research I do. And usually it's not that hard. I know that makes no sense, but usually um, it's more like connect the dots. I start going like, well, this happened and this happened. So why not have this happen? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, oh, if he goes with the green count, oh, well, if he's with the green count the whole time, uh, that pretty much is the plot. Now we're down to a very Aristotelian notion of how plot is made, because I'm going to just take us back to like undergraduate or I don't know, ninth grade, and say, so Aristotle says that we build our plots by having yeah, characters. Maybe maybe in your high school, buddy, but not, not in mine. Go on. <laughs> oh, we have characters, and because of character, we have motivation, and we build a hierarchy of motivations, and the interaction of the character's motivations makes the plot, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've got the trellis all built, and now I start peopling it with characters. Let's say the Green Count of Savoy, John Hawkwood. Well, those are some awesome characters right there. Mm -hmm. uh, toss in some priests and nuns and uh, give them all motivations. We're done. Like their motivations will give us, will give the plot movement. And I just have to keep remembering that when Sister Maria does this, that's going to push us towards Prince Lionel's wedding. And when the Green Count gives this order, that's going to push us towards Lesbos. Am I making sense? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Like, so I, one thing that, that it's curious to me here, this is where I think this is where the historian, and the historical novelists are going to start, you know, diverging. So you've got the Italian wedding, which is the wedding of Prince Lionel, the Duke of Clarence, uh, Edward III's, what, third son, fourth son? Uh, I with, want to say fourth son, but with, I could be wrong. With the fabulously wealthy uh, Visconti heiress, um, you know, all the, the, that's, a, that's a whole weird story there. We won't get into it right now. 
because the Visconti are deeply troubled, to, to put it mildly. Dr. Freud- Badder than anyone in George R.R. Martin. Oh, really. well, yeah, really. They make, George R.R. Martin does not have the imagination to deal with the Visconti. Um, Dr. Freud would have had lots of billable hours uh, with that, yeah. that, that clan. Um, the, 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 the temptation to put everybody at the Italian wedding is irresistible. I mean, but we're not actually sure, right, that Chaucer and Boccaccio ever met. Nope, uh, and, not sure. But but it, how can you not? And as a historian, I couldn't say, well, it, I couldn't even say that they, well, they probably met. They possibly met might even be too much. But I mean, there's no way in hell that you could avoid. I mean, a team of draft horses could not pull, I can see, you away from putting Petrarch, Boccaccio, and Chaucer all together at the same table. I mean, how could anyone resist that? No, partially because in my little fantasy world, what could possibly be better than sitting at a table yeah. with Petrarch, Boccaccio, Chaucer, and and William Gold? Right, like, exactly. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. Uh, I'll take door number two, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is that is my idea of heaven, and um and I'm sure the food was good, because because mafia weddings always have good food. And it is it's right. I, I just realized this is a this is a mafia wedding. That's what you're you're yeah. writing about. It's the in fact it's a the ultimate mafia wedding and shows what northern Italians do when they put their minds to be in mafia. Um, yep. Yeah. Very highly organized. <laughs> Extremely highly organized and even more expensive. And uh, the trains run on time. And the trains run on time. Um, so how do you write? I mean, how do you put all this into, you've got all your computer, you write in a computer, you write in a longhand, you dictate, yeah, what, do you, I, what do you do? I, I write on a laptop. It's really old. Uh, it says ThinkPad on it. Uh -huh. um, I think it dates to 2003, going to say. It's um, your lucky machine now. It's never seen the internet, doesn't know the internet exists. Uh, it uh, is physically had its little primitive attempt to see Wi-Fi disabled. Um, <laughs> it's had its wires snipped, as I like to say. And um, uh, it is really just a word processor. Uh, there aren't even photographs stored on it because I don't want it to slow down. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it can only write in Word 97. <laughs> uh, if you remember Word 97. Uh, it's a few years old. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I go to a coffee shop every day, uh, Sud Forno. I sit down between, I don't know, 8 and 10 in the morning. I prefer to sit down at 8. Depends uh -huh. on whether I ran that morning and whether my daughter got out of the house on time. Uh, sit down and generally work till 2 o'clock. And I pretty much sit down and don't raise my head until I've written my 20 pages. So that would be four to 5,000 words. Um because it's a job. Yeah. As you so said. You're doing 20 pages, four to 5,000 words? Is that Yeah. And that's every day? Every day. Well, is, like five days a week. I don't do it on weekends unless, like, I have a deadline coming and I really want to punch through the deadline. Well, no wonder why you write so much, because you write a lot. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, this is the Anthony Trollope school of writing. You know, let's not have any romantic nonsense. Let's just sit down and punch our ticket. Yeah, and I'm going to say a terrible thing, which will be probably held against me by some writer somewhere. But um, in most things we do, fencing, ballet, skating, the more you do, the better you are, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say that applies to writing. So we have this romantic notion in Western civilization that the best novel you're ever going to write is the one you sit down at 22 while you're weeping after some beautiful woman has left you. And you sit down and you write it all down and it's the best thing you're ever going to write. And I say... Um, I say something foul. Yeah, I, say, I, I think that might I, be true. Of, you know, I, I, some a, a wise man now uh, gone, Roger Lundeen, pointed out to me that that might be true of poetry. 
um, poetry and mathematics seem to work in some sort of strange analog where young, it's a young person's game. Um, people in their twenties come up with mathematical discoveries. Um, Keats comes up with poems and there's just something, there's something, they all, all those things fall into like a Rubik's cube of the mind. They all fall into, they all lock into place. Everything else I think takes time and just, uh, the other day I read a Von Ronke aphorism about history taking old age. Um, just to, to simply to have seen things, he says, not, I think from, I think he's saying not just in terms of seeing the analogs in the, from past to present, but just in having seen things and experienced events. Yeah. I, I'm afraid I'd agree with that. And I, I would say when I, if we were doing a different blog about how I do research, you know, one of the major reasons that, one of the major things, ways that I do research is that I started reading about the 14th century when I was 16 years old, mm. and I'm still reading about it. That's mm -hmm. one of the ways I do research. Yeah. And uh, that reached a point 10 years ago where I started to go back and reread the books I'd read in university because my memory of Michael Powick was no longer fresh enough. Yeah. And uh, that may sound ridiculous, but uh, with Philippiman, because I put a lot of time into Philippiman, um, I just want to say most days I can write without ever even glancing at my research notes because I've put a lot of time into it. Mm -hmm. And also because I'm older, I've had 20 years to imbibe background political data on how the Hellenistic world worked. And it's funny that a couple of times I've had the experience of interacting with an academic who would in effect say, now, why do you say that Rhodes was against Crete? And I say, well, like, if you walk through how piracy worked, you'll see that Rhodes was involved in an alliance. We don't know this. We don't have the synodos in our hands. But it looks like there was an alliance to prevent piracy. And there was another alliance that actually made money off of piracy. And the, the one scholar kind of said, that's a fascinating idea. I'm like, it's not my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make up that idea. Yeah. People in the 1930s made up that idea. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to know out there, a ton. And in our modern educational system where elite academics often are laser focused on a thing mm -hmm. in history, in political science, in physics, whatever it is, they can totally be forgiven for not knowing that there might be a Cretan piracy alliance if that's not the thing they study, mm -hmm. especially if what they do is Athenian law in the second century AD, right? Totally forgivable. Yeah. It's just that if no one is studying Cretan piracy, then maybe we have a problem because we used to have these expert generalists who kind of knew everything that happened in the Hellenistic world. And that's the process that I, I sometimes on good days when I've had enough pastry to eat, feel <laughs> like 30 years, 30 years of research has gotten me to the point where I kind of understand in a basic way what's going on. And when I read a new funerary inscription that nobody has popped up before, and it has some little tidbit about politics, it's very satisfying. I'm sure you know this feeling when you go, ah, I thought that city hated that other city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Anyway. Um, he, my, one of my favorite contemporary novels is actually Charles McCary. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he he says um, he writes about what he knows and what he's been is a, a speech writer, a deep cover CIA officer and a National Geographic reporter. And he in his novels, he's just trying to work out some ideas he's had, things that 
that bother him and trouble him. You've alluded to this already, but obviously because of your background, you've thought of chivalry in both a practical and now in a sort of historical novelist sense. And chivalry is something that you're trying to work out. Is that right? Yes. I, uh, look, sh- chivalry is an ethical system for users of violence. Yeah. And um, we're we're in a rough place in Western civilization. And I'm going to try not to take a side here. I'm just going to describe the place. Uh, we have professional users of violence, cops and soldiers and Coast Guard and Marines, all those people. And um, at a very real level, something that the right and the left share is their desire to not pay too much attention while the users of violence use violence. Sure. They're like untouchables in mm-hmm. Indian society. They sweep the streets and you kind of pay no attention to them. Mm-hmm. And so while sometimes people praise cops for one thing and other people curse police officers or soldiers for being brutal at a protest, one of the things that we don't do a good job at is providing them with an ethical framework because they are in many ways peripheral to our society. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that this is how I see it intellectually. In the Middle Ages, users of violence were society. They They called a lot of the shots So they had an ethical system to govern their performance, and they often fell short of it. I won't pretend otherwise. But I think there's a lot of meat still on the bones of chivalry that really applies. And one of the reasons I have reinforced this view is that I get constant, I won't even call it fan mail, from SAS officers and prison guards and cops and whatever saying, I've never been so moved as I was by such and such in William Gold. You're talking to me, mm-hmm. you know, and hey, uh, I was also a user of violence. And however ineptly and in however small a way, I remember the moral struggle. There's moral struggle. Let's be happy. Most users of violence, however much we we don't want to think about them, they are mostly moral people who would rather not hit you with their nightstick and when they have to hit you with the nightstick or when they do because they did, they feel bad. Mm-hmm. How do you want to deal with that? And I think that society should struggle with that. And I'm going to put against that the very real commercial advantage of writing about military history in the past, which people want to write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked earlier about doing a regimental laundry. You know, I probably couldn't keep 80 young men fanatically interested in reenacting the American Revolution if I told them we were going to do laundry every weekend. But as long as I give them guns and bayonets, they'll stay enthusiastic. And so this is like a knife edge for me, too. When I'm going to write about violence, I'm going to write about the moral part of violence. And I'm also going to write about the cost of violence, about how people actually die or are horribly maimed, and also the the knock-ons from violence. And I think you're aware of this, but George MacDonald Fraser wrote a fabulous book called The Steel Bonnets. Yeah. And in that book, he does a really good job of covering off the knock-on effect of a single murder in the in the lowlands, in the borders. Um, yeah. One murder of an Armstrong by, by a Jackson or a Nixon, and suddenly you're... He actually equates it, as any good counterterrorist would, to the West Bank, to Haifa, Israel, to the modern world. One killing can become 20 killings, can become a war. And that is also an aspect of violence we should look at. Mm-hmm. War is not without affect. War has consequences. Have I lost you? No, that's 
That's, okay. Yeah. Um, so when we think about, that's a serious a question to think about as any historian could think about. So it kind of demonstrates that, I mean, you're writing, um, you're writing very entertaining historical fiction, yet you're dealing with very big ideas. So it demonstrates that historical fiction can never, can rarely, I think, just simply be entertainment. Well, it can. It yeah. can. And, you know, I, I, I have a running joke, which I probably shouldn't share, but that violence is the new sex um, and it should be as effectless as possible. And, you know, the best thing about orcs and zombies is that they don't count. So you can kill as many as you want because they, yeah. they're basically not people. Right. Um, and that's a problem because in the real world, there are neither orcs nor zombies. Uh, and however much moral evil you imply to your opponents, chances are they imply the same amount right back to you. So uh, I'm, I'm going to say I try to be careful with that uh, because there is actually a readership out there and you can just pass your eyes over any bookstore or Amazon for effectless violence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a term for effectless sex. We call it pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's sort of violence porn. And I know how easy it is to slide off into that. I like to write a good fight scene. I love to write the details of a sword fight or a mounted sword fight. Yes, you certainly Um, do. I can attest to that. It it can be quite uh, nauseating. So, but, but, but it all too easily just slides off into not being very different from pornography. Right. Yeah. Um, just in, um, wrapping up here, what could historians learn if they sat down and under a pseudonym wrote a historical novel? So. I'm going to put on my historian hat because once in a great while I like sit down and actually write something that I mean people to read mm-hmm. more factually. Uh, and I certainly am invited to lecture and I give a tour in Greece, which is purely historical. Uh, and I'm going to say what I've learned as a novelist that informs me as a historian curiously was always there. It was there in some of the first books I read by people like Michael Powick. Once upon a time, historians were encouraged to speculate, guess, influence, and imagine. Mm -hmm. At some point, the rigors of attempting to appear as a science instead of being a liberal art convinced historians that their job was to convey data, to trace the data, and to pass it on as if they were intelligence officers briefing the president. (laughs) I'm going to say that even when you're an intelligence officer briefing the president, which I have done, that your job is to influence that data. Uh, It's to influence it intelligently based on what you're observing. It's not to influence it based on your political leanings or whatever, but it is still your job to say what I see could lead to this. If you have something to say, I think that what being a historical novelist frees you to do is to explore big questions like chivalry or like the role of religion or to draw connections. Um, I could make a number of them or to illustrate points like how a phalanx works that are not well understood by professional historians in a speculative manner mm-hmm. and uh, to, to create understanding even if it's understanding of speculation, as long as you're honest, as long as you're in effect saying this is speculation, 
And I would, I know you know this, I'm not talking to you particularly, but you know, my I have a ton of, of books written between, let's say, what I think of as the sweet spot of dead white male history, which is like 1920 to World War II, where these brilliantly well-educated people who had incredible educations, education that I'll never match, at Oxford and Cambridge and the Sorbonne and, you know, uh, Cologne, Heidelberg, Padua, they wrote brilliantly and they often speculated, but they were super honest when they were speculating. Mm -hmm. Now, they had all kinds of false assumptions about women and dark-skinned people and all that other crap. Great. Ignore those. But what you can still learn from them and what I think you could learn from writing historical fiction is when it's all right to speculate. How's that for an answer? Well, my guest today has been Christian Cameron. He's the author most recently of Sword of Justice and forthcoming The New Achilles. So how many of those Philippian novels will you be writing? Do you do you have that plan now? Well, I have contracts for two. Yeah. I'd really like to write a third because he lived to be 80. Yes. And not a lot of people die in combat at 80. And I'm just going to toss in this one little thing. I'm sure we're out of time. Yeah. I'm 56. My body hurts all the time when I fence or ride horses or whatever. And I sort of want to write an older character to start talking about the real experience of, you know, there was a 14th century man who jousted into his 80s. I can't even imagine who bouncing on the ground. Who is that, Busico? Or... Uh, no, uh, it, I can't even remember his name. He was an Italian knight. He was a great jouster. And he commented that fighting on foot was for young men, but jousting was an old man's sport. <laughs> I think you were one tough old man. <laughs> Christian, uh, thanks so much for talking with us. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 